Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 4. And uh, as you make your way to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, I'll read through verse 16. Um, and the main reason I wanted to read this section has to do with uh, the prayer in our section last week. That last week, we talked about persecution and the prayer that the believers prayed when Peter and John were freed. And their prayer, you can see it right up there in, in chapter 4, verse um, 28 and 30, right? Their prayer was for two things. The first is for boldness. They said, Lord, give them boldness in the face of persecution. And the second thing that they prayed for uh, right there in verse 30 is that while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders, and so they were praying for boldness in the face of persecution and continued signs. Uh, now, turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. And notice that language there. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders. That's what they prayed for. Not just the preaching of the word, which we get in our passage this morning, but you also get the signs, the wonders. And look at verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around them, bringing the sick and those afflicted, with unclean spirits, and they were healed. This is a literary unit where they pray for boldness, they pray for signs, they pray for wonders, they pray for healing, and that's what you get. You get continued prayer. You get continued boldness. This is God's Word, Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that of any things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira took a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out, and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. 
Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The, Peter also, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that you grow us up into the one who is the head, Jesus Christ, that your words come to us in timely seasons, and your word shows us what you're like, and your word helps us to keep our way pure. And so, Father, I pray that you will make us hearers and doers. May we not be like those who hear and then walk away from the mirror and walk away from what you are saying to us about us and about you. Father, I pray that we would see that our ultimate treasure in life is Christ. And if we have him, Father, then we have enough and that he shapes everything, even how we view our possessions. Would you get glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1997, PBS uh, rolled out a documentary entitled Affluenza, and it's a disease. Now, it's not to be confused with influenza. This is affluenza, and the symptoms of affluenza are depression, anxiety, unhappiness, comparison, shallow relationships with people, burst of anger, chronic stress, sleeplessness, exhaustion, lack of focus, and in some severe cases, like our passage this morning, it's death. It's been known to cause back pain and headaches and stomach ulcers. What is affluenza? This documentary says it's the disease of materialism, the disease of greed. You can go watch it. It's 57 minutes. It's on YouTube of all places, so I encourage you to watch it. In the documentary, it says that the average American shops six hours a week and plays with their children 45 minutes. More people visited shopping malls and shopping centers than places of worship. More people in 1997 declared bankruptcy than who graduated from college. Some newer statistics. My wife and I were driving down Old Ken Road, and we saw a new development, and we were looking and excited about what it might be, and it's a storage unit, a storage unit. Now, the storage unit industry in 2013, it earned $30 million a month. In 2020, the storage industry earns $430 million a month for people to store their extra stuff that won't fit in our homes. 22% of the videos our children watch on YouTube are ads. Ads for new toys, ads for new clothes, 
ads for new gadgets. They're even targeting our children to make them consumers. It's in our music. Consider these songs for the love of money. Now, you might know it from the OJs, my generation. I think of Bone Thugs and Harmony, right? Consider Cream by Wu-Tang. Cash rules everything around me. Or Billionaire by Bruno Mars. Or All About the Benjamins by Sean Combs. On the flip side, the wealthy will often speak of the emptiness that their greed causes. Vanderbilt says that to the 200 million is enough to kill me. John D. Rockefeller, I have made millions, but they have brought me no lasting happiness. Puffy and Biggie, six months after releasing All About the Benjamins, which is all about money, six months later, they release Mo Money, Mo Problems. Which one is it? Do you want more money or does money bring more problems? You see, I think the world can diagnose the problem. You listen to Vanderbilt, you listen to Biggie, you listen to Puffy. They can diagnose the problem, but they can't seem to put their finger on the solution. And I think as a church or as the church, we're close Of all the things that Jesus talked about when he did ministry here on earth, he talked about money and mammon and possessions more than hell itself. That's God's way of saying it's not just the world that has to get a grip on possessions. The church does. We do. In this vicious cycle of pursue and amass and then be disappointed and pursue and amass and be disappointed, what what, what Jesus does is offers us a better way, a better way to live that doesn't just show the dangers of possessions, but it shows us a beautiful alternative to live. Now, there's a side note, right? There are things that happen in the book of Acts that do not correlate to you and I. For example, there's the uniqueness of the apostles. In verse 12, it says, Many signs were done by the hands of the apostles, and none of the people dared join them. The people held them in high esteem. Peter walks around Jerusalem, and they bring the sick just so that his shadow would gloss over them that they might be healed. I can't walk through St. Dominic's and my shadow heal people. Some of what we're reading is supernatural. It's for that age. It's what God was doing then to validate the apostles' person and message and preaching. But there are some things in Acts that do correlate. And what does correlate this morning in our passage is how the early church handled possessions. Last week, the attribute of Jesus that should be formed in us is boldness. The attribute of Jesus that should be forged in us this week is generosity. We should be a generous people. 
If you make 12,000 a year, you make 120 a year. We should be a generous people. Now, I want to look at the first point is a picture of health. We get a picture of communal health. Now, as I read this, if, if some of you have been following more closely, you might be tempted to think that we're reading double, and you'd be right. Back in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, Luke has already told us that all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And two chapters later, it's the same thing. Now, why? It's for the people in the back. If you didn't hear it the first, not literally, right? But literally, right? Not, not literally, but, but <laughs> metaphorically, right? In case the people in the back didn't catch it the first time, or in case you didn't tune in the first time, or in case you were out or sick the first time we were in Acts, what the Holy Spirit does is say, well, guess what? This is so important. I'm putting it in here twice. Now, when some people see this, they think Christian communism. Wait a minute, Pastor L, you're telling me that when they became a believer, they instantly brought all of their assets and they laid them at the apostles' feet and the apostles took everybody's assets and then as, as people had need, they redistributed it. That, that's not what's happening here. This is voluntary, first and foremost. Second, this was not uh, this, this, they still retained personal property. It talks about them selling land and homes. But here's the thing that you later read in Acts, Lydia, who's a wealthy woman who trades purple, that she begs the apostles to stay at her house. She kept her house. Simon the Tanner has a house by the sea. In other words, they didn't sell everything that they, they, they still had personal possessions, but they stewarded even their home to the glory of God. Much of the action in Acts takes place in homes who house missionaries and pastors and parishioners. Fourth, one scholar says that, man, what we, how we should read this, this is the liquidation of extra assets. And it does not undermine parts of Scripture, like 1 Timothy, where it says that if anyone does not provide for his members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what's going on here? That those who came to Jesus were at various points on the socioeconomic strata. That last week they called Peter and John common and unlearned and uneducated they would have been at the bottom of the barrel in Greco-Roman world. And then you get to our passage, now you have venture capitalists and landowners and real estate developers. You have these people, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear about widows who don't have enough so that they have to get their daily bread from the apostles. And the apostles says, man, we're getting overwhelmed because there's so many poor people. Let's have deacons so that we can preach and teach, so that the deacons can do the ministry of mercy, that this is the church. They are all over the place 
economically. And as they're growing, they're growing fast, y'all. First it's 120, then it's 3,000, then it's 5,001. Men, the size of this church versus the time, they are growing exponentially. And you know what's never happened? They never grew so large that they were disconnected from each other. They grew small. They stayed connected. Now, how does this happen? It says that there was not a needy person among them. And I think we have to define need. And I think we have to let the Bible define need here. What is need? What are the basic necessities of life? It's food. It's clothing. It's safety and shelter. Paul says in 1 Timothy that with these things we should be content. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. And what, what, what Luke is telling us is there were no homeless in this community. There were no foodless in this community. There were no clothesless in this community. How? Because they didn't see the church as a place, but as a people. They didn't see the church as a community of believers. They didn't see the church as this is a social community I'm a part of that's on equal with all the other social communities I'm a part of. No, they saw their local participation in the church, a church. This is the most important part of my life. This is my family that I'm doing life with. It's right here in this space. See, friendship in the Greco-Roman world, it was always, always around equal. Go read Aristotle. And Luke is indicating that Christians were of a different breed. They provided funds to the community for those who were needy without the thought of return. Witherington says that this is more akin to family than friendship. This is how families would have been acting in the first century world. And this is how the church is acting. You can see what's driving their generosity here. Look at the text. Before it says anything they did, look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. It's that right there. One heart, one soul that's driving the generosity that you see later. Think about a husband and a wife who get married. The two shall become one flesh. You're one. Does a biblical husband look after the interests of himself alone? Or is his good tethered to the family and to his wife and does the wife look after her own interests alone no that that their interests are towards each other it's communal and that's what's happening here is that this church these believers despite their diversity they were tethered to one another looking after the interests of one another they had possessions, but their possessions didn't have them. 
The needs of others were greater than the excessive needs or excessive wants for themselves. People were far more important than possessions. Their oneness vertically with Jesus had implications for oneness horizontally with people. They viewed their possessions in light of God, themselves, possessions. And that's where most of us might stop. God, possessions, me and mine. And there's a fourth element to this body. It's the body. It's other people. If they saw a brother or sister in need and realized they had extra stimulus money, an extra house, an extra piece of land, they didn't do a cost-benefit analysis. They didn't go meet with a financial planner. They, without compulsion, gladly parted with material possessions because they value people more than stuff. John Wesley had 22 questions that he regularly asked himself and he regularly asked other men and he was in community with. And here are some of those questions. Do I care more about my outward appearance than my heart? When was the last time I spoke to someone about my faith? Do I pray about how I spend my money? This is a beautiful picture of health. They're relating to possessions properly. Now, the second thing, we see sick, sickness and symptoms and the source. Sickness, symptoms, and the source. There's a history of misuse of possessions in the Bible. We could go with Judas, who sold Jesus out for silver and gold, who stole money out the money pot. You could go back to Joshua, where Achan stole some goods that should have been devoted to destruction. You could go to Demas, who is in love with this present world. He's abandoned the faith. You could go to the rich young ruler who, who left Jesus sad because he had an abundance of possessions. You could go to Proverbs, where it says, give me neither poverty nor give me riches. Don't give me poverty lest I steal. And what's just as dangerous as poverty? He says it's wealth. Don't give me wealth lest I blaspheme and say, who is the Lord who needs him because I have everything I need. So if you go back in Scripture, you're going to see the Bible showing us people who get it right and get it wrong and who are wrestling. And what you see here is someone who got it wrong. It's a couple. It's a man named Ananias and a woman named Sapphira. And the irony here is Ananias is the Greek rendering of a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name is Hananiah. Hananiah means grace of God. Sapphira is the Greek form of the Aramaic adjective beautiful. So their names, beautiful grace of God. And you don't see beauty. And while great grace is coming upon all of the church, great grace is devoid in their lives. What is it that's robbing them of great grace of God? It's greed. They have money. They have extra land. They have extra property. And so they come up with this scheme and they do it together. And so here's the scheme. They have a house or they have land, 
and they sold it, let's just call it an even 10 racks. $10,000, that, that's it. Sold it for 10000 took it to the apostles, laid it at their feet, but they laid down 8000 not 10000 The practice for the rest of the people doing that was you sell and you lay it all, or you sell and you disclose, right? You, 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 you are truthful, and they didn't. They put two grand in their pockets and wanted credit and, and wanted the people to believe they only sold it for eight. This is idolatry. They have to profit even when they're being generous. They have to give the appearance of generosity. They can't part with money. They are possessed by their possessions. And they lie. They lie to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. And the Holy Spirit is God, verse 4. And the irony here is they breathed their last because they lie to the breath. This is what one author calls a judgment miracle. It's when God acts definitively and swiftly and in judgment. It's where he suspends Mercy, he suspends his patience. He is patient, he is loving, and he is merciful. He is all of that. But, but for a moment, he suspends that and reminds his people that you don't play with Holy Spirit. I think this is a judgment sign. It's a judgment miracle. Remember the refrain. They prayed for signs, they prayed for wonder, and they prayed for healing. And the wonder here is that the Holy Spirit is God. And the healing here is of the covenant community. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you can lie and be deceitful and be greedy, don't you see the tone of the body right now? And God says, no. Did you notice verses 5 and 11? After Ananias and Sapphira died, it says, Great fear came upon all. In the church and out of the church. And what's sad here is that Satan shows up. Did you see that right there when Peter says in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Last week, Satan tried to kill the church with persecution. If he can't harm the church externally with persecution, you know what he'll do? He'll rot it from the inside with immorality and idolatry. And that will spread and spread and spread. This is why, beloved, it is so hard to get a handle on our possessions. We find security in saving. We find meaning in money. We find identity in amassing. We find pleasure in possessing. And the possessions we possess end up possessing us. We'd rather hold to them and die than to part with them and be generous and live. It's so hard it's hard because companies are spending more money on marketing. Companies are coming out with 
this new iteration, this generation of this new thing. And Satan is in our ears, tempting and trying. If you only had this, your life would be complete. If you only had that, your life would be whole. And companies like Amazon never close. At 3.53 a.m. tomorrow morning, you can order something. And by 6 p.m. tomorrow evening, it can be on your front door. This is what we're up against. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, which I've, re- I've referred to it a lot. I think it's really awesome. But he has a chapter on possessions. And he tells this story of preaching through the seven deadly sins at his church. And as he was preaching or planning the series, his wife, Kathy, told him, she says, I guarantee you that the day, the week that you deal with greed will be your lowest turnout. And he says she was right. He said people showed up when I talked about lust. They showed up when we talked about pride. They showed up when we talked about anger and wrath. He says, but they didn't show up when we talked about greed. He said, you see the danger, the, 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 the modus operandi, the way that, that greed works is that it hides itself from us. He says, I have never in my life of ministry had one person meet with me who said to me, Pastor, I struggle with my lust for more money. My greed is harming myself, my family, and my community. He says, I have never had someone set that kind of meeting up. He goes on to say that the reason is that we're deceived. We're blinded to our greed because we compare ourselves to others in our socioeconomic sphere. And we don't compare ourselves to the Bible. And when people from other countries come to America, the things that we call needs are laughable. This is why it's hard. And this is why we wrestle. It's a struggle and it's real. But praise be to God, they aren't the only examples here. Finding the cure to the sickness is our third point. That you, I want to introduce you to two people in our passage who get it right. The first one is obvious. It's Barnabas. You see him right there in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what what, what Luke does is he takes us from generic health to gives us a real person from a real place, from a real tribe, and he shines the light on, on him as if he's saying he's relatable. You can do this. You can be cured of greed as evidence right here in the passage. So we're not enslaved to the bondage of greed that we can be freed. We can be cured of affluenza. Now, how? How are we cured? 
It's because of the other person who's mentioned in this passage. Look at verse 433. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He ain't dead. He is alive. Look over at chapter 5. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So there's a second person in this passage, and it's Jesus. And what the apostles are preaching is that this Jesus has been resurrected. Now, now think with me here. Jesus being resurrected, that's loaded language. It means this. If he has been resurrected, that means that Jesus has died. And if Jesus has died, then it means that Jesus came to the earth to live. And if Jesus came to the earth to live in the incarnation, it means that Jesus existed before Christmas. It means that Jesus had existed in perfect harmony and fellowship and communion with the Father before he took on flesh. And if it means that he is eternal, just like the Father sitting with him on the throne, with him there from all time, then it means that all the silver, all the gold, all the galaxies, all the planets, all the stars, all the solar systems, they're all his. And he made it all. And what he did, the one who was rich, who owns all things, created all things, the gospel says he became poor. He did not count equality with God as something to be held onto. That he would say, Father, I am willing to divest and divulge myself of all glory and all honor and all possessions. I will leave it here and I will take the form of a servant and I will go and be born and will breathe, and I will not have a place to lay my head. I will have nothing materially to leave anyone. And when I can't divest and divulge myself of those riches, I will divest and divulge myself of my life. I will give my life for greedy people. That's the person in the passage who gets it right. He's alive. And you know what God is doing for this Jesus who is alive because he handled possessions rightly, because he valued people more than possessions? You know what God gives him? Look at the language again in verse 5. And the Lord, verse, uh, chapter 5 Verse 14, and the Lord added more than ever believers. You see the language there? That's return on investment. That's Jesus who became poor to the point of the cross, who was raised. And what is God doing for Jesus now? You value people. And honored me, I'm giving you people. I'm giving you believers. What is fueling, what is the cure to our greed? 
It's when we behold and bask and make much of the God who was rich and he became poor to rescue us from our spiritual poverty and bondage to make us rich. He did not hold on to possessions, but divested himself of everything, even his life. That will make us generous people to the degree that we rest in that, that we marvel in that, that we bow the knee, that we see God's hand at work in this. This is how we're delivered. It's by the grace and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus towards us. We can have possessions dethroned when Christ is enthroned. And the generosity here can be embraced by everyone in the body, not just the wealthy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's a beautiful passage where Paul is making an appeal to the churches in Corinth to get on deck. Don't say you don't have enough. He says, let me tell you about these small persecuted churches in Macedonia. He says, in their affliction and their extreme poverty. They were po-po. Po-po and persecuted. And what Paul says they did for the, the, the help of the saints, they gave out of their poverty. This is a principle of generosity that is applicable to all believers. If you're a kid cutting the yard for your parents making $10, you can be generous. If you work on Wall Street and you make 10 million and you follow Jesus, you can be generous. And everybody in between. Quickly, what's the blessing of our generosity? First, it helps the poor. They get a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Y'all know two times in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 15 and John chapter 12, the Bible says you will always have the poor among you. Jesus says it as the expensive ointment is poured on him before the cross. And God says that there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, open your hand wide to your brother and yet lay those, topic, those passages on top of what's said here. There was no needy person in their midst. None. Not one. The only other time we see that is in the new heavens and the new earth. For poverty will be a thing of the past. And for a split second in this community, New heavens and new earth broke in. And the poor could see where all of time is going. It's a blessing for the giver. Ananias and Sapphira are mentioned no more. You want to know whose name is mentioned? All in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians and Galatians. It's Barnabas. This generous person here plays a role in God's story where he makes Jesus beautiful. 
and famous. Giving is not just for the poor. It's for us. It's a privilege to give and to be generous. It's a blessing to the watching world. It's no small thing that the most growth you see in the book of Acts is actually right here. It's, it's, and, and more and more than ever, like more than ever, believers are at it. Yes, more than ever, right here. How does this work? I imagine it working like this. Barnabas got his homeboy, some of them Christians, some of them not Christians. Barnabas sells this land, and his non-Christian friends are like, bro, what you get for it? What you get for it? And he tells them, I got something and I got nothing. And he shows them. He says, let me show you what I just got. And he walks them. He said, you see that dad who lost his job? And you see that food on that table? And you see their worship and enjoyment of God? That's what I got. It's worth way more than that field over there. And his friends are, whoa. So this Jesus guy, you really believe he's real? Of course he's real. This is how he's loved me. It's a blessing for your future. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, he says, imagine that you are assigned to go work in a temporary place. And it's a six-month assignment, and you can only go there for six months. And because you are coming back on a plane, you cannot bring everything you purchase. But what you can do is send your deposits in advance home. He says, that's what's going to happen for you, Christian. There are no U-Hauls that will haul your house to heaven. There are no U-Hauls on the back of a hearse. You can't take it. But what you can do is store up treasures there where moth can't destroy and thieves can't steal and rust won't corrupt. You can do it by investing and being generous right here and right now. So, how generous are you? One family I know bought a house with an extra bedroom. The kids asked, what's the extra bedroom for? And the parent says, it's for people in need and distress. We're keeping a room waiting on them. And they've housed 30 people. Another family has another property, and they choose not to Airbnb it. It is a respite for weary families. Another kid cut the grass, and he brought his $1 to church, and he put his $1 in church, and it echoed into eternity. There are missionaries that are going places that you can't go, and they need your prayer, and they need our generosity, and it's a privilege to partner with them. May we be generous people. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that by your spirit you would work this in all of our hearts. Make us like your son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.